This is the Power to Podcast, show 140. And teachers can't do anymore. You, you know, we're, teachers are maxed out and they're doing, working incredibly hard. And most care very deeply about their students. Um, but what we're not doing is giving them the advantage of the, what this neuroscience can tell us, which is that we can actually improve. We can have, we can have students who come to our classrooms better prepared to learn. We're more focused better able to learn, better able to remember, better able to keep things in mind, makes it way easier. So if we want to look for where that the leverage is. Welcome to a real world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Ken Erman, host of the Power to Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Pole Vaulter Rogers. Matt, we talked some track, some decathlon, and some brain and cognitive functioning today. If you what listen, a conversation. Yeah, if you listen to these episodes, you know that I am just the, the straight shooter as the host. I ask direct questions. They don't deviate whatsoever. They're very clear all the time. Um, Ken you know, is the elaborator and mm -hmm. just, you never know where he's coming. The real wild card, to be honest. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk for five minutes and then turn it to the guest and not even ask a question, but expect them to, to answer. <laughs> uh, that never happens to me. <laughs> so we had Betsy Hill on our podcast today and she does have experience as a teacher, but she hasn't been teaching for a long time. She's, um, she's transformed her career into studying the brain studying cognitive functions, studying executive functioning, which you and I both learned that we only knew about one third or two thirds of what executive functioning even is. And I think for most teachers, they'll, they'll feel the same in, in those conversations that you hear circling through professional development nowadays. What was your, your single biggest takeaway from the conversation? So I'll say um, it comes up later in the episode, but I think when talking about the brain, at least for me, when they use technical terms like cortex and frontal lobe and, and these type things, I tune out. Like it, it sounds too technical. And then the other things that go along with that sound so simple and obvious that I also feel like I turn tune it out. So I can tell you like executive functioning skills are important, but it's really difficult to define because a lot of times it sounds so obvious. And so we, as good teachers, integrate ex executive functioning skills just naturally without necessarily understanding the why behind it, which as educators, where our students ask us the why behind what we're teaching, you know, that was the biggest takeaway for me is we're learning about features and development and the ever-growing possibility of the brain to 
enhance what we're good at, but definitely enhance what we could use practice in, regardless of how strong or weak you are in different processing modalities. Yeah, for sure. And, and like you said, there's a lot of research talk and, and I felt like the conversation was very relevant. It was, you know, it's easy to become disconnected when, when it goes down this rabbit hole sometimes for, for us teachers, but Betsy was very relevant and kept it very connected to the classroom. So I think our listeners are going to gain a lot from this conversation and feel there is a lot of value in, in how we can approach um, teaching and learning. So I say we jump right into the conversation with Betsy Hill after we hear from Teach Better. Hi, Betsy. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's start things off nice and simple here. Please officially introduce yourself to our audience. Let us know where you are coming from and give us a snapshot of your career in education. Okay. Well, I am coming to you from a little north of the city, beautiful city of Chicago, and it's sunny and very warm today. So that's that's a good thing. Um, I <laughs> started off my, I assume we can skip over like kindergarten and things like that. But my so my career in education began when I was graduating from college and I had double majored in French and Russian and decided I wanted to teach. So I started teaching um, foreign languages in high school and there were parts of it that I loved and parts of it that I found very frustrating. And like many teachers, I defected after about three years. Um, but I was always very interested in education and involved in um, the school, the uh, um, high school that I had gone to I was very involved in, served on the board of, tr of trustees of Chicago State University for about 14 years. Um, continued to read. I was very interested in how the brain managed language. And, um, you know, I, there were some of my students that picked things up so quickly and some that just really struggled with it. And I didn't have the things in my tool bag, to, my toolkit to, uh, to address that. So um, that was, uh, you know, part of the, the impetus to go try to do other things, but was interested in the brain all along the way. And um, that's what I do now. So I actually still teach today. I teach in an MBA program. I teach strategic thinking. Um, so, you know, I sometimes describe myself as a recovering educator. <laughs> that, that's a great way to put it. So I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because uh, you know, a bulk of our guests are classroom teachers and we learn about their passions and, and the way they approach instruction. And there's always common themes, but teachers approach it a little bit differently depending on the demographic of students they work with, the subject they teach, the, the age level they teach. But we have had other guests on that are authors and, and keynote speakers. And we did have a, um, a psych, uh, like a psychology researcher on that talked to, to a lot about uh, motivation and the science of motivation. And so I think it's really important for us as educators to hear and learn from other colleagues, but also to kind of dial it back and think about how does learning take place and, and how does the brain best learn so that we can make sure that we are using the correct strategies to best provide students with appropriate instruction that's going to help them learn the content that we're trying to teach. So I'm, I'm going to lean on you a little bit here, Betsy. Where where can we start with this and, and what you've learned with the brain, whether it's related to how language is learned or what was kind of like the initial 
maybe the initial um, aha moment for you to really take this full-fledged and make a career out of, of studying the brain? Well, I think one of the early sort of aha moments was um, when I started, you know, working with brainware and really started to understand um, at a different level of depth that there, that intelligence isn't just one thing, number one. It's a whole bunch of different processes. And it's, um, and it's also something that isn't fixed. Um, you know, we, I think a lot of people, st- I, I know a lot of people still believe that we come into the world with a certain amount of intelligence or capacity or intellectual ability or however you want to refer to it. And, and then we're sort of stuck. I mean, I think as a classroom teacher, and as a, I remember when I was young, we, we could all say, okay, here are the smart kids and here are the dumb kids. And that's just, it's really not good. You know, it's not factual and it's not accurate. And, um, and I think a lot of teachers know that, but also struggle with the fact that typically there are kids who do well with a bunch of things and others who struggle. But what that masks is that we all have cognitive strengths and weaknesses and these skills, these mental processes that our brains use to take in, store, retrieve, manage, organize information um, are we can we all have strengths and weaknesses. And um, when we understand what those are, then we can understand a whole lot about learning. So that's probably a good place to start and to start also with suggesting, you know, there are some some of the cognitive skills that the teachers are probably pretty familiar with. We all, you know, one is attention. It turns out that there are a bunch of different attention processes, but, you know, we all know kids who struggle to stay focused, to stay on task. Um, uh, sometimes when I'm doing presentations, I, and I've with a group of teachers, I will uh, ask every teacher who has a classroom full of students with good attention skills to stand up. Never had anybody stand up, <laughs> uh, and and that that's so that one's that's pretty obvious. And there are others that we don't necessarily appreciate. Um, that when we start to delve into them, we can uh, get insights into how our students learn that really can help us. So, one example of that is um, our long-term memory skills, and it turns out that. Some people have a better memory for verbal information, and some people have better information, uh, uh, memory for um, visual information. And in fact, most of us have one that's stronger than the other. Sometimes people have really strong skills in both, and sometimes they have really weak skills in both. But if you think about a child who has really strong visual memory, it's like everything they see, they remember charts, graphs, diagrams, images, what the football field looked like, how many people were on, you know, just, it it just sticks with them. And then you have people, other students who remember what they hear. They remember, um, you know, the uh, the words of a song very easily, or they remember a poem really easily, or they remember whatever it was the teacher was talking about yesterday, giving instructions. So now think about a typical assignment that a teacher would give uh, to learn some new vocabulary words. Well, if you're a child with good uh, verbal memory, then the typical vocabulary assignment is going to make a lot of sense. 
and you've probably done these, you know, write the word, write the definition of the word, write the word in a sentence. That's a great way to learn vocabulary if you have really strong verbal memory skills. If you have strong visual skills and weaker verbal memory, that task is going to be excruciating. It's going to take a long time. And at the end of the day, it's not going to result in very good learning of that vocabulary. So this is, you know, a simple way that we can, when we understand, it's not just about preferences, it's about being able to scientifically um, measure the strength of these skills. Then we can give that uh, stronger visual memory learner um, the task to create pictures and associate pictures with words, which is gonna be far more effective for them. So that was a long answer to your first question. <laughs> that was a great to, answer. Yeah, to, to jump into it and I'll, I'll share, and maybe I'm doing this earlier than I should. I feel like what I learned, at least in you know pre-teaching uh, instruction, and even into, you know, current and like being like Ken is a father and what have you, we learn naturally a lot about the development of the brain of very young kids. That is very common. And we have to understand that that development and, and those type features, but it seems like when you get to a certain level, um, like what gets pressed towards me, I'm a fourth grade going to be a fifth grade teacher is, you know, present instruction visually, present it uh, auditorily, present it uh, kinesthetically so that the students based off their learning strengths will have access to that information. And realistically, for a lot of us, or maybe it's just me, I feel like the, um, the scientific brain research is kind of like that'll generally cover everything can you kind of speak to the development of the brain specifically in the different tiers of education because a lot of times and i don't know if it's you know a, a 10 year old or a 14 year old have so many changes that it's hard to isolate what is the brain development compared to um you know seeing easier trends in a, a younger child right so there are a couple of concepts that are embedded in your question. And one of them is the idea of windows of development or critical developmental stages. And, um, and the idea behind that is that there are certain periods of time during which certain skills develop um, and then it becomes much more difficult. So a really easy example is foreign language where um, when we are born, we can hear the sounds of all the 6,000 languages that there are in the world. And um, then we start to prune those away. And by the time we're somewhere around 10 to 12, um, it's much more difficult to learn the sounds of other languages to recognize them. And, to, and so that's why most kids, by the time they're learning language, has a great deal of difficulty um, speaking without an accent and most won't ever be able to speak with a, you know, a um, native's accent. And that's one of those developmental windows. And it doesn't, you know, absolutely shut the, 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 for most skills, it turns out that the brain is more plastic, more malleable, 
and can change more than anybody ever thought and or that most of us realize and so even with so with really um, very specific training you can speak much more like a native speaker and you can adapt that even as um, in college or or later than that um, it's going to be easier for some people than others and there's so that that idea that there are windows of time sort of made us say okay well if so if my, if my students haven't learned to do x by the time they're in my class they're just never going to get it right i might as well not bother so that's one thing we have to keep in mind and then the the other thing is that there are skills that develop over a long period of time so cognitive there's a special group of cognitive skills called executive functions. And you probably heard that term. It's being used a lot in education today because these skills are very predictive of academic performance, of behavior, of things that we'll do as adults, including how much money we're gonna make, whether or not we're gonna be healthy. So executive functions are really important. And most teachers tend to think of these as self-management, self-regulation. And there is that component to them, but there are actually three executive functions. One is working memory, which is our ability to hold information in our mind while we think about it. One is inhibitory control, which is very much related to that self-regulation, not being impulsive. And then the third is cognitive flexibility. That's our ability to shift our mindset. So uh, when people in the world learned that the earth was not flat, but round, that had to change a whole bunch of different ways that we thought about things in, in life. Um, you can also think about it as um, uh, what we do when we our first approach to a problem doesn't work and we have to shift gears and think of something new. So these executive functions, which mostly happen in the front part of our brain, our frontal lobe, which is right behind our foreheads, are the last, this is the last part of the brain to develop. Our brains develop, they mature from the back, which is where our vision is. So we develop our vision really early in life. As you, as you, as Ken knows from watching your baby start to track you and start to be able to reach for things and, and all of those, they're developing those visual skills as they interact with the environment. And that's, I guess, another really important aspect of these skills is that they don't just happen. They happen in act in in uh, interaction with the environment. And so our what happens to us in our environment, our opportunities to develop are going to have a big impact. But in general, our brains have this back to front kind of development. And our from on average, for most people, our executive functions are not fully mature until you want to guess? 20 mid 20s, they know they're saying even 30. Now think about the fact that if you wanted to rent a car, to sign a contract to rent a car, you have to be 25. So the, the and these skills of course, are gonna keep you safe when you're driving, they're gonna make your behavior less risky on the road and, and in all kinds of other ways. So the car companies got it right for probably not knowing anything about brain development, but just based on you know, the statistics of it. So that's the other can thing. I, it's, can I? It, no, go ahead, Ken. Can I, 
can I ask you a question about the development of the of the frontal lobe? I've I've heard many times <clears throat> and read some research about how development starts it, it starts at birth, even though it's going you know back to front, and the development of the frontal lobe slows down at the age of five and then continues to develop again at the age of 18. Have you seen or heard any of that? Any, is that something that I'm, I'm seeing that's not factually based? I have not seen that. Um, so I don't, I don't know of any reason that that would be. So what, what I, there are some things that happen, some sort of unique um, things. So the, you probably remember the terrible twos. So that what's happening is that our brains, um, learning is really the creation of all these connections among the neurons in our brains. And so we create trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions. It's like 1.2 synapses per second or 1.8 synapses per second from the time we start to develop until we're like two. It's just, it's enormous. And by the time we're two, we've overproduced connections. We have too many connections. And so that's why two-year-old behavior is two-year-old behavior because they have too many connections and it's causing them to have a lot of conflict with, you know, they can think of 18 things to do and they're torn and it's, you know, challenging. So what our brains do at that point is they start to prune. They get rid of the synapses that aren't useful. And so, so at that point, um, you know, and then we start to strengthen and keep on working on um, the, those connections that are the most useful. So it may be that there's a phase when we're about five, except that it really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, you can throw away what I said because you know a lot more than me now. I at least know not to. I can't think of any. Again other than the fact that I did it on air. Um, so please, but I, I'm glad I had that clarified. So please continue with what you were saying about ex executive function. Yeah, okay. Um, so these skills, actually it turns out that cognitive skills in general, uh, although executive functions play a huge role in it, account for 50% of the variance in academic outcomes, more than any other factor. And I think a lot of teachers can probably tell you this, that, you know, what kids bring to the classroom in terms of ability to learn has a huge impact on what they are actually able to learn. And you, you see kids, um, you know, I happen to be a very good student. I got school. It worked perfectly for me. It was, I could remember things. I could understand things. Um, but we work with a ton of kids for whom that's not the case. And I had a ton of students for whom that was not the case. Um, they couldn't remember, they couldn't, uh, you know, the, we, we've, in fact, we've um, seen a big impact of COVID on, on memory skills. At least it seems to be that way. And I, anecdotally, when I say that teachers go, oh yeah, um, the kids are less, and I'm seeing Matt nod his head. So that the kids are less able to remember things. So that phenomenon that we experience as teachers so often where we say, well, I, we covered that yesterday, or, you know, I told you that before, um, or we say, you know, that we tell the kids things one day and they can't remember them the next. That's literally true. And it's not because 
a lot of times it's not because they weren't paying attention. They were paying attention, but it just isn't sticking in the, in the way that it needs to, because those are, you know, all of these skills are interdependent, but they are, you know, we, we can identify those stumbling blocks and those weaknesses. So if you have a child, for example, who has um, weak inhibitory control, you're going to probably see a child who, number one, does things impulsively. They may hit somebody, they may blow out the candles on somebody else's birthday cake, they might, you know, blurt things out in class. And it's also, they're probably much more likely to blurt things when they're reading. So, and it's not because they're just guessing at words, it's actually the inhibitory control that is making it difficult for them to suppress this word that came into their mind. If you have um, a child with weak, weaker working memory or less working memory capacity, um, you're gonna have a child who is gonna probably have a difficulty following a set of instructions. So if you say, Johnny, would you please go, you know, um, hang up your jacket and then go and put your homework on the homework in the homework folder and then sit down at your desk to turn your book to chapter, you know, page 22. Johnny may get to the hanging up his jacket and then he may come back and he may look like a deer in headlights, like he has no idea what he's supposed to do next. And it's not that he doesn't want to cooperate. It's just that he is not holding that information in his mind. He's also probably going to struggle with reading comprehension because what we're doing when we're reading is we're the, the, the part of our mind, our conscious processing is actually working memory. And so when we're holding information and trying to relate it to what we already know, um, that happens in working memory. So working memory has a big contribution to reading comprehension. And then if you think about cognitive flexibility, so a child with um, uh, difficulty in that area is probably going to struggle um, in general life, just maybe shifting between activities or um, seeing things from other people's perspectives. You know, the kids who, th I'm right, you know, there's only one way to look at this. Um, but also they're gonna probably struggle, even if they're really smart and have good problem solving skills in general, they're gonna struggle because if they hit one of those situations, which we all are gonna hit at some point, where the, your approach to solving that problem doesn't work, then you're stuck and they're gonna get very frustrated. So one of the important things about executive functions is understanding that these are not just behavioral, they're not just academic. These, they're the same cognitive processes no matter what situation you're in. We have one brain, we take it everywhere we go. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something, and uh, hopefully it's not a swing and miss like Ken's. So, um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm really intrigued. What you know, I, it, no, I, it, so, there's a lot of, of new stuff coming out. I'm going to go look it up afterwards, and we'll have to. Uh, we might have to put a disclaimer. Not, right, but I, <laughs> that's not what I've heard. So using, I'll, I'll use a, a life analogy, and, and bear with me. Feel free to pause me if I'm not being uh, clear. So in college, I ran track and I did an event called the decathlon, which is a bunch of different events. Um, 
some throwing, some running, some jumping. And I actually just saw this yesterday on Twitter from my old coach. He said, if you were to have an athlete that you have one opportunity to train, would you train what they are good in to make them good towards elite? Or would you train what they are weak in to make those slightly better? The connection that I'm trying to make is I'll use myself as an example as a learner. I had an auditory develop, uh, processing delay as a learning disability as a learner. And I found that once I found a study and uh, moving information into working and then more permanent memory, once I found that strategy, it was more helpful for me to stick with just that strategy. In other words, take a good skill, make it closer to elite rather than trying to do a weaker skill and make it slightly better. Which do you think as a teacher, it makes more sense? Is it make more sense to say, I know this kid visually struggles, but auditorily might be on grade level. I'm going to more emphasize keeping them on grade level or is it a better responsibility to say, I know this is weak, I'm trying to support that to become more well-rounded? It's a great question. And what I would say, oh, I'm not going um, to fall for the I have to choose one. I'm going to explain. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'm going to explain why, uh, how we want to think about this. So when we understand, and it's both are very important. So when we understand a child's learning strengths, like understood that you maybe had stronger visual processing than auditory, that because you weren't uh, processing those sounds and those words as um, uh, as you probably have developed to be able to understand them now, but that was a struggle. So. Um, uh, and, but when we know what the, their strengths are, then we can give them strategies to use them and to continue to strengthen them. And that's something that's a lot easier for a teacher, a classroom teacher, especially without um, the right resources to do, because you can recognize that you can help them um, practice that and become, you know, elite. For a lot of kids, um, you know, that is going to help them, but it's not going to uh, really get to them to the point where they can keep up with their peers. So if you have a sign, and this can happen with bright kids or, you know, even that have really strong reasoning skills, but have some significant weaknesses, something like processing speed or something like working memory or something like, um, um, spatial perception, those kinds of things can really be stumbling blocks um, in the learning process, cognitive flexibility very much that way. And so if you don't have those skills or have the, the, they're very weak, it's, it's going to really stand in the way. You're going to fall behind. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to probably get to the point where you just, I can't do this. I'm not smart. You see those kids who just say, you know, I, you know, they might become the class clown because they are going to act out to distract from the, the fact that they're having struggles or they may just shut down 
um, the, the kids who sort of disappear in the class. The reason that's so challenging for a classroom teacher is that these cognitive processes are not things that are very amenable to direct instruction. And that's what we do as teachers. We instruct, we explain. Now, when you did decathlon, did you have to do a pole vault? Is that one of those? I did. Oh my yeah. gosh, I'm so impressed. Okay. Well done. How do you? <laughs> well, I use this as an example because it's so esoteric. I call it esoteric. It's something that most of us have not ever, you know, most of us have run around a track. Most of us have done jump around yeah. and things like that. But very few of us have pole vaulted. Things, yeah. And so if I was going to try to in direct instruct you to do a pole vault, that to explain to you, I could explain to you how you grab the pole. I could explain to you how you, I don't know, I see them rocking back and forth and then you take off yeah. and then you plant, whatever. You can explain that and it's really not going to. The way you do it is by practicing or like diving or like something yeah. else. The sensation. So these are skills that happen at a non-conscious level. So we can't explain to somebody how to hold more information in their mind. We can't explain to them how to focus better. We can't explain to them how to be more flexible. I mean, that just doesn't compute. So, but we can train those skills with uh, the right kind of cognitive training. And that's really what we're starting to see now uh, is something that it can actually be done in schools. Um, it used to be one-on-one -on -one therapy, but it's now um, available in a computer-based uh, format. Um, and uh, we have a program called Brainware Safari that it develops a whole bunch, 43 cognitive skills. So all the skills that we've been talking about, and it's like physical training. It's, it's you know, practicing them. Um, I'm sure you did a lot of cross-training. You know, you're developing those different sets of muscles, and then you got to get them all working together. So some of the same principles really apply. And so if you can get a kid who has, you know, very low processing speed up into the range where it's, it might be low, but it's within that expected range in that sort of middle third. The bell curve, yeah. yeah. Huge impact, huge impact. Um, and, and, and what their teachers and their parents will see. So we had a, a child once, um, was we do a cognitive assessment at the beginning with everybody that we work with. And um, she, this child tested uh, very low, very slow processing speed. Her mother called up one day just beside herself because the school was telling her that she thought uh, their, her daughter had oppositional defiant disorder, ODD. And this was a child who was a rule follower wanted to please, wanted to do everything right. There's no way. But what it looked like to somebody at the school was that they would ask this child to do something and it would take her a long time to process what that was. And so it can look like something that it's, that's not. Um, and that's the other, another aspect of this is really when we understand it, we know why things are going on and we can address them appropriately. So what I find I, really interesting Ken, before you okay, before go you go in, I have to give Betsy 
kudos because like any good educator you use a metaphor that speaks to the person you're talking about you know you putting yourself out of your comfort zone i just wanted to give you kudos (laughs) okay and really really showing us up because i've already exposed myself to not anything about the brain and she's now also showcasing that she's a a a track legitimate track expert (laughs) yep well i did i had my boys all ran track so yeah, none of them did pole vaulting. So that one is a real stretch for me. But yeah, well, for the brain, that might not be a bad thing. <laughs> there are some some challenging things that go along with it. So Sorry to interrupt, Ken. What I what I find interesting about the executive functioning, and like you said, that is very popular right now in, in schools. There's a lot of conversations and professional development related around that. And I will say that the working memory piece and definitely the inhibitory control piece is what I feel bulk of the training and the professional development, the conversation around executive functioning is not the cognitive flexibility. I I personally had not heard that being related into executive functioning and and maybe I'm I'm naive and not knowing that, but that's not circled in the conversation. Most teachers don't know that. And in fact, if you were considering working memory as one of the executive functions, you're ahead of most teachers and and the, okay. this is still yeah. not big. it's a, the inhibitory is really the the bulk of that and what i find interesting now now looking at all three of these as a set when i using a very naive standpoint when i think about working memory the ability to hold information like you said i'm going to say like okay like the child is born with that like they're doing the best they can like that's that's just the way their brain works it's going to be hard for us to help them inhibitory control self regulation well, that's something that they can learn. They need to learn to control themselves. Cognitive flexibility, the ability to shift our mindset. Well, that's not that's not a brain function. That that's just an attitude thing. We just need to work on their attitude towards problem solving and towards change. So like that's a very naive standpoint, but but what you're saying is that it's all these are all brain-based cognitive functions. So if you could give us like one example of a strategy or something that a a student or or an adult could practice to improve each of those three. I I would love to hear that. Even just like a simple analogy or example, just to kind of like get, get around that. Do you, do you kind of know what I mean? Like how only one of them sounds like it's actually cognitive? (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I think so. It's, you know, um, so first of all, I'm going to say that to really develop these skills, effectively. You have to develop them in combination and with a lot of repetition, probably beyond that, that an individual classroom teacher can do, certainly with a bunch of kids. So you're going to get, I'm still going to give you some strategies, but I'm what I, because we can, we can provide our students with opportunities to, to start to develop them. But if you can, we're not going to have the kind of impact that we could if we did um, cognitive training. So, so when we do cognitive training, you know, we can see, um, you know, multiple standard scores improvement, multiple, you know, dozens of percentile points. Um, I think of another way to, you, you know, half or a full standard deviation improvement in uh, these skills. So. So I just wanted to you know, explain that. Having said that, we can certainly work on these in, um, 
in, in the context of a classroom. And it's going to probably require teachers in some cases do some things a little differently than they do. So one, one way to work on working memory is to do things that are designed to have you hold things in memory for a longer time to, to keep, try to keep it active. One way to do that is to repeat things out loud. And so if there's something really important that the teacher says, having the students repeat it out loud, having them explain it to each other, having them, um, you know, rehearse it basically. Um, and if it's remembering that exact thing, you just want to rehearse it over and over. If you want to deepen your understanding, you have to elaborate on it and discuss it. And so um, peer teaching, you know, uh, after something's explained is a, is a way to do that. Um, or, you know, if you give a set of instructions, some of the students might benefit from um, jotting it down and then, you know, and repeating it. Okay, I have to do this, and then I have to do this, and then I have to do this. And, you know, it's maybe more noise in the classroom than some teachers like, but it will pay a lot of dividends in terms of helping those students with holding on to something in working memory. Um, in terms of um, inhibitory control, um, that, that's a hard one because it is so, basically what it means is you stop yourself from doing something you otherwise would do. Um, and so teachers do a lot of things like count to, you know, stop and count to five. Even that's, that can be really hard because you have to stop it in that fraction of a second before whatever it is. These are, you know, skills that you don't have time. But if you can help kids develop that practice, um, and maybe you do it where you're just in a, um, you know, in a circle and, uh, someone says something and I say, Ken, um, you know, it doesn't even matter if it's whatever, Ken, uh, the sky is purple and you want to say the sky is not purple. Have you count to five and then say the sky is not purple, you know, so gives you a little chance to, to wait on that. And then cognitive flexibility. One of the things that um, we do with a lot of the kids that we work with is we um, we do, we have these like scenarios. So I'll give you one. And uh, let's say that you're in your classroom and you left your pencil on your desk and you turn around and you're talking to some friends and you go back and the pencil's missing. So we can, first reaction may be somebody stole it. Now we want to say, okay, now let's think of three reasons that it might have happened. So one might be um, that really cute girl that you're interested in talking to borrowed your pencil to write you a little note and her phone number. Um, another might be it just fell off the desk. Maybe you should look on the floor. The third could be. So when you, um, and you can have a lot of fun with this, uh, you know, thinking of, of things that could have caused it. But um, 
So that's that's a really good way. And another way is to you know, just think about. Um, we all have this experience where you know two people come to you and they're telling the, the story of this. They're telling you about the same event, and it's like two different things happened. Um, so if you can find, if you can, if you can, you know, capture those things as they happen, that's another way to really bring attention and highlight the uh, cognitive flexibility. I guess one of the things that I'm I'm kind of processing is we have worked with students that um, I, I guess I'll kind of partner with what your what you've shared already. We've worked with students that obviously have strengths and weaknesses. And as you know, Ken, in your current role as a secondary educator, we don't want to ignore the, the strengthening of all skills. But we also can observe students that are developing skills towards future careers. So for instance, if a kid goes into the high school environment goes into a maybe tech-based position, like a CTC-style program, and absolutely flourishes because school finally completely makes sense. Books and writing and uh, writing, like math in practice is totally different than, you know, solving an equation-type scenario. Is there a realm that you find this cognitive development shifts into uh, professional skill priority as opposed to instructional responsibility. Like uh, the point that I'll make is, as I was kind of alluding to, once I found strategies that worked, even if the teacher was asking for me to display it in a different way, I would understand it in my way and then provide it or translate it in a way that made sense for said teacher. That's how I got to the point of being able to pass classes because it was tough for a long time until I figured out what worked. And so we see kids like I'll I'll use a perfect example. I have a student that I know is going to be wildly successful in an art and craftsman environment. I do not worry about them being a successful human in the future because their conversation skills are fantastic. Their writing and reading are good enough, yet still significantly below level, but their talents are so exceptional that I know that they're going to grow up and be a very, not just functional, but gift to society when they get to that point. It almost feels like we're just biding time until they get to that point. That perfect example, his father is a glass blower. If it gives you some perspective, right? It is in the genetics. They have never in that family lineage, they are successful human beings because they know where they excel. So what is kind of your view in being in this realm and saying, buddy, like, I, I know that I'm responsible to teach this and, and you need to develop these weaker skills, even though you see such brilliance in other ways. So I think it all fits with what we've been talking about um, since the beginning of the conversation, which is that these skills have to do with everything, you know, and that, that we do everything we, uh, all, all the academic skills, all the life skills, 
my guess is, and I see this over and over again, is that those that uh, student you're just talking about, as well as the student who goes off into the tech environment and is going to go like crazy, all of a sudden they're going to hit their stride. Um, probably if we looked at their cognitive profile, we would see that they had much stronger visual spatial under reasoning, spatial perception, and probably not nearly as strong verbal reasoning as, as average. Unfortunately, the school system puts such a priority on the written and spoken word, on language, that it leaves not much room for some of those kids with extraordinary talents. There's a genius inside every child. And we just, you know, finding that thing, you know, I I'll often talk about careers as finding something we love that loves us back. And, and that's that combination of, of disposition, you know, what I find interesting, but also what I'm, I'm good at. And um, when we work with students after they've been through our cognitive training, we actually work with them on being able to articulate and explain what their cognitive skills and strengths are. We have them think about it in the context of a future career, future profession and how it would contribute to that and what they can do to continue to build on that. So I, I guess that just, you know, absolutely underscore exclamation point, put a big red star next to it. Absolutely. We, we need to, we need to do these, those things and we need to, you know, rem it, you know, I think I just want to take my hand off to you also, Matt, to say that, you know, you're not going to worry so much about those um, skills that are not as strong because you know uh, you don't want to suppress that the the that excellence and that stardom and that enthusiasm and that um, uh, you know that passion that are thriving within that child when you help them do what it is that they're so incredibly good at. Well, and I think that's the hard part as educators, because it, it feels like the weight loss journey that we all have. Like, even if the scale said the number that I wish it said, it never does. You know, we still always feel like there's more that we can be doing. It never feels like we're in actual maintenance. And as a teacher, you know, even if I were to develop two, as you mentioned, that bell curve, almost that below average, but functional level of some of these weaker skills, we're still always striving. We're always striving to increase those areas and improve. And that's the beauty of life that, you know, a lot of athletes talk about every day, they try to be 1% better than the day before. And that's, that is an academic perspective perfectly too. Like every day, just taking strides forward while having grace for ourselves. I think it's just really, really tough because there are times that they say that I am, as a teacher, supposed to worry about that. 8.15 when the first bell rings, 3.45 when that last bell rings, we know that our brain does not turn off, and especially as empathetic humans, that we don't want to continue or feel obligated to continue to worry and care about our kids and try to figure out how we support them even better. So I guess my my question, and feel free to jump in with any thoughts on that, is 
we're in this this uh for lack of a better word no win scenario because there's always work to be done where do you find in that best big picture taking first steps to be more uh whether that's open-minded to the different learning advantages or to create an environment that allows all learners to see more success on a daily basis? So I'm going to express it in, in a way that says that the, the most underutilized asset in learning and teaching is the student. And what I mean by that is that we are leaving so much potential learning power on the table by not addressing cognitive skills and by not helping our students develop them. So these, this is not something that, you know, the classroom teacher can generally do without the resources and support. Um, they don't have time. They could learn how to do it, but they don't have time to do one-on-one -on -one cognitive training with 30 students or 25 students or where, whatever it happens to be. Although they can do it with a computer-based training. And what, if, if, imagine if, so, you know, we, we worked this past year actually with a group, in a high school group, um, where um, what we saw was this, and they did a great job of implementing the program. And what we saw is that all of the students every single the, the on average all of this then there was a bunch of weak areas and also about some high areas just you know just the kind of student that you were talking about and after their cognitive training all of these skills on average were at least in the expected range so that means it's teaching is going to be so much easier because learning is so much easier and you know everything we try to do in education is more is putting more has been for years putting more on the teacher you guys know that you know you get told got to cover this you got to cover that you got to do this you got to do that you got to now give all these tests and teachers can't do anymore you, you know we're teachers are maxed out and they're doing working incredibly hard and most care very deeply about their students um but what we're not doing is giving them the advantage of the, what this neuroscience can tell us, which is that we can actually improve. We can have we can have students who come to our classrooms better prepared to learn. We're more focused, better able to learn, better able to remember, better able to keep things in mind. It makes it way easier. So if we want to look for where that the leverage is, which is I think that sort of was the you know, that's, you're using a lot of leverage when you're pole vaulting, go back to my pole vaulting. Totally. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, so we could, you can, you can, you can pole vault with a pole that has the right kind of springiness, you know, to get, to throw you up where you need to be, or you can use one that's less. And if you have a choice, you know, get the right pole, right? Well, the, the rough part of this uh, analogy is if you use the wrong pole and it snaps, then you're really in trouble. <laughs> so, yes, right. very, very good. 
Yeah, I guess that that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And and that idea of I, I think what's so encouraging is what you're sharing is that there is so much growth compared to, you know, more narrow points of views. And I think what's really hard and Ken, feel free to chime in. What's really hard from my side, Ken and I are very naive compared to the amount of knowledge and research that you have. Our naive perspective when we don't know something, we jump to common sense, human nature, or our own experiences. So we start filling in these gaps of naturally, this is what you should do. Um, because, you know, you read any educational book, and 94% of it sounds very obvious. And, you know, the the subtle differences are really reading it slowly and acknowledging that we're not just giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt when it comes to a lot of this work, which we do so often. Yeah. Well, most, most good teachers are teaching in brain compatible ways, if we can use that phrase, because they figured it out, because it makes sense, because it works. And, and usually, uh, you know, when they start to learn about what actually happens when the brain is learning, they go, well, that makes sense. You know, it just, it, it, and it is reaffirming because what it does, it supports what it is that they're doing. And, um, and that's one thing. So um, that's my, what I see over and over again with teachers who are just really good. It's not that, not that they studied it, but that they figured it out and, and, um, and, it's still the case that most teacher preparation programs never mention the word brain. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's crazy. It, it is. The longer I've been in education and, and frankly, the, the more that we've, we've done this podcast, it does bring up that frustration of the lack of relevancy in what to be teachers are learning in, in higher education, because so much of it is completely irrelevant to the position that, that they're going to be in and, and the way they're working with students and how they have to support students. And, and what I, what I've loved most about this conversation is just the idea that these are cognitive functions of the students that can be improved, that they can develop and that they can overcome or, or enhance to allow them to then strengthen their other ones and just become better learners, better problem solvers, uh, more successful uh, individuals. And and I think, like you said about experienced teachers knowing this, I think a lot of it comes from that experience and also encouraging that of our students. So I would very often try to work with all of my fifth grade students on organizational strategies and studying strategies and um, how to manage themselves doing independent work and managing long-term projects. And I would I would like to introduce different strategies and say, I'm forcing you or requesting that you try this. And here's why I have it set up this way. Here's why I'm recommending this specific strategy for studying. I would explain it to him and say, you have to try it. You might try it and say, Mr. Ehrman, that sucked. Like that didn't work at all. Great. That's fine. Now, you know, someone else is going to say, wow, that really worked. I did really well, or I really uh, understand or remember that content, or I got all my work done and I normally don't get it all done, or my binders are more organized, whatever the case is. So it was, it was this mindset that I approached with my students of, 
you're still in the phase and even I am still in the phase of figuring things out. And, and I would always, you know, spoof on myself a lot and talk about how, you know, the students see me as being, you know, they, I think students very commonly, especially when there's a good relationship and respect amongst teachers and students, they see the, the teacher's strengths. They don't see the teacher's weaknesses as much because I feel like anytime you idolize someone or you, you respect someone, you, you focus more on those. Um, you know, like, you know, my son, the, the athletes that he's obsessed with that, that type of thing. I would always talk about how my short-term memory, and maybe that's the wrong terminology, but my short-term memory is terrible. I'll walk upstairs and I'll forget why I walked upstairs. I will, my wife will say, make sure you bring this with you when you go to this place. I will listen to her. I will acknowledge it. And I will walk out the door and not do anything that she just told me to do. <laughs> and so I would tell the kids how, like, when my wife would call, when Mrs. Irvin calls me and says, you know, she's somewhere and I'm meeting her and she says, you have to bring this. And I was like, you know, it was a, it was a salad to a barbecue. I got my car keys the moment I hung up the phone and I put them in the refrigerator on the salad bowl. I said, that is the only way that in an hour I was going to remember to bring that salad with me because I would spend five minutes looking for my keys and then finally remember they were in the refrigerator. And they would laugh at those things, but it's like this idea of, of you have to understand how your brain functions and you have to come up with strategies. And so that's why I want to, to introduce them. And it's just reassuring to know that the brain is as malleable as I thought it was and that they can pick up these skills and they, and they can develop. And I think it's important for us as teachers to continue to encourage that with our students and to find ways to embed it into the things that we're doing on a daily basis. So I don't want to cut this conversation short, but I can I, I ask, can I ask one question actually? <laughs> so one of the things that I, I think about often, we hear a lot of advertisements, Ken and I are getting older and they like friends of mine are starting to do brain games to keep our brain fresh. And that's something that continues but one of the things that I think is interesting, I obviously went through a bunch of testing in my educational experience and have better knowledge of how my brain operates and percentile and, and these areas of strength because of uh, reevaluations in the education system and, and uh, IQ style tests. Do you feel like having an understanding of how your brain functions as a human being um, maybe compared to other people is a asset for students and humans or almost ignorance is bliss. Cause like you said, we're all capable and we can all grow, but sometimes I wonder, is it more helpful or damaging to understand in these realms of success? Um, I know I'm really strong at this asset and I like, I look into that, but the devastation of like, I'm only in the 30th percentile of this level. Is there any benefit or drawback, um, especially as, you know, sensitivity is really high. Um, and as leading into, as we get older, you know, continuing to work on that just for, you know, I have Alzheimer's in my family and dementia, like those type attributes of trying to fight against that for general brain health. Okay, so um, there are a couple of questions in there, one of which has to do there totally is, with yes. uh, whether it's good to know your co your cognitive profile, basically. I'll just simplify it with that term. And it, it done the right way, yes, absolutely. So 
there is the, the version of, and when we do our cognitive assessments, we share um, detailed data about uh, strengths and weaknesses with the parent because that's really important understanding. And so the parent will see if their child is in the 30th percentile or the 10th or the 5th or the 98th, whatever. And you can be in different places, in different cognitive skills. We all have stronger and weaker. Um, we do that uh, for two reasons. One of which is it serves as a baseline so that then after we do cognitive training, we can see the growth. And so we can measure it in a specific way. And so parents can see that, which we believe is important for them. When we share the information with the student, we don't share that. We share it in a different format. And basically what it does is divide the cognitive skills that are assessed into three categories. Their reasoning skills, their memory skills, and their executive functions. And it lists the skills in order from the strongest to the weakest. But there's no, you don't know whether you're, there's no numerical association with it because the focus is very much on strengths for the student. Um, and it's helping them understand their strengths, use their strengths. In the case of executive functions, there's more of a focus actually on the weakest one because that can be the stumbling block. So we, they get a, a primary strategy for using their strongest reasoning skill, a primary strategy for using their strongest memory skill, and a primary strategy for helping support the weakest of their executive functions. And so it makes it very actionable for them, makes it very, um, you know, so from that standpoint, um, it's really important, but you gotta be really careful about just as I think the point that you were making on, on how you do that. In terms of, of you know, when we, uh, as we age, most people are concerned about quality of life and brain health. And there is evidence um, that build, you, that is possible to build cognitive reserve. Um, so this is not, uh, you know, to, we certainly want to build as much of it as we can, uh, it's going to just improve our chances whether or not we're liable to, you know, have a, a predisposition for Alzheimer's or something else. Um, we don't know really whether it's going to delay the onset of symptoms. Um, there's, you know, certainly some suggestion that um, people who are very active and involved, you know, will fare better as they age in term cognitively. Um, what there's, there are a few things that have um, been shown to be the most effective with um, that. Um, and it's not crossword puzzles or Sudoku or things like that. Um, actually, physical exercise is one. Um, another is um, learning a new skill, like a new language or learning to play an instrument that you haven't played before. And another one is the right kind of cognitive training is, you know, where you're working a whole bunch of different skills. And, um, uh, you know, as we said, our brains are plastic throughout life. So we can continue to, to improve those skills, even as we, even in, you know, middle age and in our senior years, whatever we want to call them. Um, so um, the, the key is to do something that's not what you always do. If you always do and you know how to do it, 
um, but it's like, this is the great news for teachers. You know, you talk about, we want, you want to create lifelong learners. Well, you're going to do them. You're going to help them build cognitive reserve if they are always seeking to learn something new and to try something new and to develop new skills. Well, thank you for tackling two wildly different questions. I wanted to get both of those in before <laughs> Ken cut me off. So yeah, thank well, you. It, I've, I've worked on my working memory. So I, I, as you can see, able to hold both of those questions in mind. And that, that That is very evident. Ken <laughs> would be, you know, checking the refrigerator. Yep. Yeah, yeah, very, very impressive. So uh, I do want to be respectful of, of your time. And I want to jump into the exit ticket, which is the same four questions that we ask uh, every guest every week. We might modify them slightly for you with, with your experience. But the, the first question I, th I think you can absolutely tackle what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? See them. See your, make sure your student knows you see them. That's a beautiful thing. I thought about this. I should have said this before the first question. We should have given all four questions and see if that working memory would have hung. <laughs> okay, I have my paper and pencil here because when it gets to four, I'm not gonna promise. Yeah. So they are all different and, and I'm sure you will absolutely uh, hit it out of the park like everything else. This is just a personal thing, could be personal or professional, but what's the best piece of advice that you've received? And it, it may have came from a colleague, a supervisor, or a student you worked with. The best piece of advice that I've received. Um, so I'm going to just tell a really quick story. Um, when my middle son was uh, about 10, he, I was um, going through a transition in my work environment. The company was being reorganized and I was trying to find a home for these little fledgling businesses that I'd been working on. And it was very frustrating. And I would, you know, go in every day with a different strategy or talk to a different group or try, you know, kept, I kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. So I was taking Zach to um, his dance class one night and I, I trained my kids to ask the, the first question I, they asked when I came home, it couldn't be what's when's dinner. It had to be something else. So he said, so how was your day? And, you know, Instead of saying, oh, well, it was fine, or I talked on the phone, I started to tell him a little bit about it. And so he listened, and then he, we got there, and he got out, and he turned back in at the age of 10 and said to me, so let me get this straight. Right now, they're paying you to argue with them. And all of my tension went away. And I went, you know what? I am being paid to give my best advice, my best understanding. And so I guess the advice is from the 10 year old was, um, you know, say what you have to say and, and always speak the truth and from, from your perspective. And that's what people are counting on you for. That's pretty uh, deep from a 10 year old. That, yeah, is, that is very he cool. He was unusual. He's now teaching uh, English ninth graders. Uh, that's very cool. So in your opinion, what is the best way for us to manage times when we're feeling overwhelmed and that might be related to work or even just general life? Um, oh, I think everybody sort of comes up with their own 
own way to do that. I think, you know, sometime, I, I think it's really good to have So the thing that, that I do when I'm feeling like there's just too much going on, there's so much stress, is I go back to whatever the most recent, I listen to one of our customers' testimonials or something like that. I recall a conversation or I get into a conversation with the parent where I hear what's happened, what, what we have contributed to a transformation in their child. And that just, you know, remind yourself what's fulfilling about what you do and just focus on that. Just a, a really quick comment because Ken adjusted that one. I think self-talk is so critical and I'm sure in that cognitive development, um, that self-talk, is there anything that you kind of address in that self-talk? Because that self-talk often turns negative, especially with this cognitive, like if a kid is aware that they are successful or not successful, that that self-talk, I can't type language uh, is okay. so limited so, as well. There's one answer to that, one real quick, one word answer, and that's the word yet. I can't do it yet. And when we, anytime I hear anybody say, I can't do that, I add in yet. Because that's, uh, that shifts your mind completely into what what might be. And it's hard to do something you're convinced you really can't do. But as we've talked about, these are, you know, and the experiences that, that kids have in our programs really help them realize that they are able to accomplish things they never believed that they could do. It seemed impossible at first. Um, and then they were able to do it. You know, pole vaulting and or whatever the other decathlon events are, it probably seemed impossible, but you did it. I really like that. And like Matt, Matt said, I uh, adjusted that question slightly just to um, to fit our conversation here. But it's interesting because literally just the guest we had on the previous show shared something similar about, you know, when school becomes a struggle, when it's those busy times of the year in the school year, just going back to student compliments and parent compliments is a, is a nice way to, to center ourselves, which was very similar to your, to your answer. So what is the best way for us to continue to adjust to change? So things are constantly changing for teachers' expectations, curriculum, standards, our leaders. What is a, a strategy for us to handle those moments of, of change with a, a positive mindset? Um, I guess being clear on what's not, you know, the, the, the values and the, the, the center of your own belief structure that is not changing. And then, and then trying to, to figure out how these changes can support that. Um, cause if you don't, if it doesn't make sense, it's like when we try to teach, teach our kids something that they isn't relevant to them, you know, and we say, okay, now we're going to introduce this concept. And it's like, well, why do I have to do that? Um, if, if we, <laughs> and because you're going to have face it on the SAT or the ACT is not a good answer. And because, you know, because it's on the, you know, the test is not a good answer. Um, 
we, we, and it's, this is hard to do with a lot of the content that's in school, unfortunately. Um, but it's not teacher's fault, but it's, if we can't make it relevant to students, so we got to make it relevant to us too. You know, it has to be whatever the change is, we got to figure out um, how it makes, you know, can make better what we believe that is the important part of what we do. It has been a joy to spend a few minutes with you learning about a topic that you are clearly an expert in. How can our audience uh, continue to follow along with your research and what development you are, uh, you know, gifting the world of education? Well, we, we, um, our, our website is a great resource. It's mybrainware.com, B-R-A-I-N-W-A-R-E.com. Um, we do, you know, webinars and we have a lot of, um, I have a big archive of webinars on uh, lots of things related to cognitive skills and you can get uh, PD credit for it um, by watching those, but things on, if you're interested in any of these areas, cognitive skills, um, some of our most popular ones have been things about um, uh, cognitive skills and students with, um, from low socioeconomic status. Um, uh, because we, you know, those are, we know about the impact of uh, poverty on cognitive development. So it's a very, uh, it's an important topic, but there's a whole bunch of growth mindset, a whole bunch of other things that people really um, have enjoyed. So that's something I would, and we also have a book that we just um, published and it's designed a lot for parents, but um, a lot of teachers are parents too, and it's called, it's called Your Child Learns Differently, Now What? And um, you can find more information on our website or it's available on um, most of the online booksellers. Awesome. Thank you so much, Betsy. We will link up to all of that on our show notes page, which can be found on our website at powereduup.com or wherever you're watching or listening to this. Just scroll down and you'll find all the information <clears throat> there as well. So seriously, thank you so much. This was really insightful and, um, and important for us to, to think about these things and think about how we are approaching our students, not only from a instructional standpoint, but from a cognitive functioning standpoint to make sure we're, we're doing our absolute best to provide every option and, and experience for our students for them to, to learn and grow as much as possible. So we will encourage our listeners to check out those resources as well as that book. Um, I wrote it down for myself. My oldest child is five and my youngest is two. So I feel like it could be really beneficial for me because parenting is a whole heck of a lot different than <laughs> teaching. Um, and so so I'm, I'm, I wrote that selfishly down for myself as well. So thank you again, Betsy. Um, and well, thank you. It was great to here. talk with you guys. And I loved all the questions. <laughs> Well, as we power down this episode, you left us feeling powered up. Thank you for the time. For our audience, we look forward to our conversation next week. Talk to you then.
Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to or watching us on YouTube. Each week we get to talk to amazing educators who are making a positive impact on the lives of students, their colleagues, administrators, and education as a whole. It's been such a privilege every week to be able to talk to these incredible individuals, learn from them, grow with them, and better myself and all of education through these conversations. If you haven't already, please consider sharing this with a colleague, someone who can benefit and be powered up from the experience of listening to these incredible conversations. Because of Powered Up, we are powering education by empowering you.